You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Welcome back. I had a wonderful experience chatting with a longtime friend and industry giant, Francesco LaFranconi. Francesco shares his upbringing in Italy, what led him to the international beverage scene, his deep passion for flavors, beverage, and food, and the sacrifices that he's made, what drives him to keep innovating and his love for our industry. His life journey is incredibly interesting, unique, and just beautiful. Francesco's story is one that is so special and inspirational, a story that only he can tell in that Francesco style. He also reminds us that we're not drinking, we're learning. So sit back, grab your favorite cocktail, and enjoy the show. Hey, Francesco, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on as a guest today. Ciao, Bridget. It's a pleasure to be here with you and looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. You know, we've been um, friends for, I think, a couple of decades. And I know I met you in Las Vegas when I was uh, working at the Bellagio. And at that time, you were working for Southern Wine and Spirits. And I would love to have our listeners really know and understand what brought you into the beverage industry, how you came to the United States, and all about your background in Italy. I know it's a long story. It's a beautiful story, and it's an inspiring story. All right. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. (laughs) All right. Life journey of Francesco LaFranconi. (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Well, I will start saying by saying that I was born and raised in a family of uh, bar owners. So grow, uh, you know, I was born in the Lake Como area, which is uh, north of Milan, uh, near the Swiss border, very, very famous uh, tourist destination. Of course, many Americans know that as well. And um, my parents used to own grocery store and, and a bar and a little nightclub um but then when i was very young we moved uh, towards the venice area which is in the northeast of italy near the slovenian and austrian border and basically you know they they found another bar and uh, my father started to make ice cream from scratch and and i tell you this because i will reconnect with the conversation of a uh, bar fresh uh, story so remember the ice cream story uh so, so you know i i really i literally started serving guests when i was i would hold a tray probably five about six year old and seven year old i used to meet the guests you know the table and i remember there were like these couples coming 
out of the church on Sunday afternoon and coming into the bar for, you know, if it's winter for a hot punch or a hot chocolate and so forth. But I was so shy, I couldn't have eye contact. So I would just drop the, the tray in front of them and walk away. Um, so, you know, the, the part of the bar uh, and the guest interaction and that hospitality is very well ingrained in me. And um, I cannot imagine a different, you know, childhood or a, a different way to be exposed to, you know, to our hospitality industry. But I also had an opportunity beside the bar um, from my mother's side, uh, our family have a big, big farm. And um, that was a time where I really discovered that and understood the seasonality, seasonality with the crops, a seasonality, you know, uh, with the harvest. And um, the January was the month that we would, you know, sorry for the vegan out there, vegetarian, but killing the pig, right? And make the salami sausages and all of that. And we would stay home from school all our, me and my cousins, you know, that was the only day of the year that we could stay home because, you know, we would took a, a celebration and it was part of uh, 15, 20 family members to basically be there with the butcher and <laughs> use the kitchen table of my grandma <laughs> to make all the charcuterie. But um, I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I was very uh and meshed with uh, the countryside and you know and the the farm life because on the other hand you know especially in the weekends helping my parents in the bar and uh, in the summertime when i was young i was kind of a troublemaker right and i was you know teenager not necessarily bad bad but you know i I used to stay away, I, you know, leave in the morning, come back late at night and be with my friends and all of that. So my parents, to avoid that concerns that I would end up somewhere else, <laughs> they decided to send me up uh, in the mountains uh, with my grandparents uh, to, you know, uh, with the cattle. Um, they had hundreds of cows and than sheep and so I was a shepherd for one or two months every summer <laughs> until I was about 15 16 year old and um, it was magical it was you know uh, with nobody around and uh, just very very rural way to experience life for a month or two and when I came back to civilization in the <laughs> end of August <laughs> or so right before school I was very um, it took me about two weeks to adjust to get back into the swing of things because I was very, I was just so at peace with nature and, you know, my grandparents and living a life. In the beginning, I didn't have in one of these uh, mountain homes with the stable and everything, uh, we didn't have water or electricity. So the water was coming from the spring. And I had to go get it with buckets. And there was only the fireplace. And so you can imagine to spend, you know, about a month, month and a half like that uh, in a very, very somewhat, you know, primitive way, but very organic and very mm -hmm. um, spontaneous. So everything that I experienced in the past, 
with the, the farm life or this type of situation. I'm not, I'm not embarrassing at all to, <clears throat> to say that, that uh, it became part of my, um, you know, it, it became a part of my life and the way that I am today and the empathy that I have for people that are less privileged than me, uh, you know, the compassion that I have to hear stories of um, emancipation, um, and so forth. So uh, I, I think it was truly a great bless that I had a very strong family, uh, grandparents and parents. And, you know, I didn't experience uh, any um, troubles or divorces, you know, for my parents. I mean, so I had a wonderful childhood. I, I think if I can describe it for some of the viewers who are familiar with, I felt like I was Tom Sawyer. You okay. Know? Uh-huh. That yeah, was type yeah. of my growing up experience. And uh, at that point, after going to middle school, so there's a time that you have to decide what to pursue for your future studies. And I really wanted to become a veterinarian, but I was not very, very good with math. So mm-hmm. I kind of, I was a bit discouraged. Uh, luckily, I didn't try just to waste time. I decided not to pursue it. And I decided to go back in hospitality and I went to hotel school. And this hotel school, uh, very close to my house, uh, was very good because it was the only one in the country back in the 80s, late 80s, that hosted a sommelier by Italian Sommelier Association, the three levels. So it was very uh, pioneeristic uh, in a certain way and I had and that's where I found my mentor the individual that taught me um, a bit basically instilling me the passion for the bar the cleanliness behind the bar the charisma the posture the mise en place and everything so it seems like since I was a very young child I found situations to help me to create building blocks to take me where I am now. So I went to hotel school and um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I also had stage uh, overseas, went to Scotland to represent the school. You know, we did a twin exchange and, and I, so I had a blast. And, um, you know, I, I was 18 years old with a level three sommelier certification that I was, Realistically speaking, you know, it was way out there because at 18, 19 years old, you don't know much about wine, right? Even if you grew up in Italy and drink it every day, but right. not to that level. And, um, and this is a great story because during this hotel years, I met Moreno, the barman that was my teacher. So imagine you go to bar school every other week for three years in a row. Every other, and you study, 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 study. Uh, you know, it was very intense. And then with the Metro D, and so I think of, you know, the hospitality that I know, the hospitality that I can apply, it really uh, bridges a gap between the older generation and the new generation. So I will also tell you when I will come up to date with my current position why I wanted to have that position specifically, because I want to reiterate uh, what I just said about, you know, the hospitality and, and bridging the gap. 
But uh, if now I am in my, you know, teenager, like our, you know, 17, 18 years old, and um, I asked my teacher if I could do stages um, at this place. Uh, granted that before that I did uh, a stage at the Harris Bar in Venice where they invented the Bellini. Amazing. And, uh, and I had a chance to meet Arrigo Cipriani, the father wow. of Giuseppe, which is now Giuseppe runs the business worldwide. But uh, it was very difficult, very challenging there. But I learned a lot, especially, um, you know, about uh, American guests, wealthy people, celebrities, and the kind of that code of behavior that goes along with it and uh, all the etiquette. But when my teacher... Uh, had this beautiful piano bass called the Dama Bianca, the white lady. And it was, you know, kind of because of the cocktail white lady, the, you know, with the gin, triple sec, and lemon juice, with or without egg white based on where you are in the mm -hmm. country or in the world. But and um, I had this beautiful lamp with this white lady sitting on a half a moon on top of this beautiful black uh, half, uh, you know, um, uh, maybe grand piano. And my task was to basically be a commie. A commie is basically a busser or a barback. And I was in charge to make Irish coffees and clean the ashtrays from cigars and pistachio shells and clear tables. And I was, you know, 17, 18 years old, working until three in the morning. And my father would drop me off on the weekends around eight o'clock and my teacher would take me home about 30 minutes drive to my home with his old Jaguar that he was with a broken muffler that he would wake up the entire town at three in the morning when he was driving by. <laughs> 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 and then uh, I had to wake up in the morning and help my parents because we had the bar next to the church. So my father was also helping the, you know, the priest and the, and I was also an ultra boy and, uh, and we had weddings. So I had to take care of the weddings and, you know, and then the bar, we had a big, big, uh, about 80, 80 seats outside uh, in the garden. It was beautiful little up in the hills. Um, and, and that was kind of my life growing up. I didn't really had a lot of chance to do a lot of vacation with my parents. They always work, work, work. So, they instilled in me this very, very strong work ethic and, you know, working 10, 12, 14 hours a day is almost in a negative way, when in a positive way, it, it feels like it's spontaneous, right? I never look at the clock. Um, I just think that it's normal to work until you need to, you know, you don't ask for breaks, you don't, you know, you just forget to eat for 10 hours 12 hours and you just push 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 and that's basically growing up but i also met a lot of colleagues that and uh, so it was just the environment but i was at that time you know after hotel school and, and at that time it was beautiful because imagine you're 17 18 years old you have no idea what life uh, lies ahead for you and you are in this piano bar with these wealthy politicians and you know businessmen with their mistresses with this beautiful you know fur coats and jewelry and 
eating, you know, fondue bourguignon at one in the morning and drinking champagne. I was the Dolce Vita, right? That was the last, <laughs> the last is basically, um, it was the end of the era of the Dolce Vita. They started after World War II in Rome because there was Cinecittà, right? So a lot of celebrity, also American celebrity actors used to film in Rome and that's how the name came along in Via Veneto. Uh, near the American embassy and all of that. So it portrayed through Milan and other business cities in Italy, but uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, the government cracked down on politicians, corruption and so forth. So that was the end of that nightlife, right? Mm -hmm. Of the very good nightlife. It was a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, like I said, businessmen and mistresses and corrupt uh, individuals you know it was the very you know the nightlife right the dark everything happens after midnight and sure and for me being 17 18 years old exposed to that i was like wow and <laughs> i was so fascinated and when my you know my mentor moreno used to close the bar at two in the morning three in the morning there were still people inside and he that was the only time he would allow me to go behind the bar and make a caipirinha in a mortar in a wood mm -hmm. mortar that a, a customer of his from um, uh, uruguay brought and it was a very tall like one foot tall mortar with a pestle and I would muddle the lines with demerara brown sugar and I'm talking 1988 89 wow and you know crack the ice a la minute with the bar spoon and so forth uh, and that was the, you know that was the apprenticeship but then harry's bar came along and you know i was thinking about being behind the bar and feel majestic but instead i had to peel shrimps and uh, make bloody mary mixes and bellini mixes and uh, mop the floor and unload the boat you know with a plank and uh, with all the liquor cases, soda cases, and all of that. So it was all different. <laughs> it wasn't as glamorous as you were hoping. <laughs> and finally, I was able to be behind the bar. And never forget the bartender, his name is Plinio, I think. Is, uh, I think he just retired recently. But the ice was in a bus stop on the bottom of the counter. And um, when it was empty, instead of telling me to go get the ice, it would kick me in the shins and say, go oh. get the ice, you know, hurry. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, it was, it was so tough. But honestly, when people complain in our industry about, oh, I got to work this or that, or uh, they have no idea. Um, so I'm so happy that I went through that very, very tough, you know, the Fort Knox of, uh, of uh, apprenticeship. And because it's really, it was, you know, just like uh, very, very hardcore. We put you to test and say, do you really want to do this? Is this really what, why, why do you want to do this? Why do you have to go through this humiliation or this, uh, which I condemn, I don't support, I don't. But at that time it was accepted because it was just the way that our industry was established. And, um, you know, when you read the book of Harry Johnson, um, you know, it's a fantastic, uh, the beginning of the book talks about how to train uh, a bar back, you know, uh, mm -hmm. bar boy, actually, that's how he calls him. And so I, I encourage everybody to read Harry Johnson's uh, bartender's manual because it's very helpful to bring you back in perspective of the 1880s, how they would 
you know, train the staff and encourage passion and commitment. But um, after that, I said, yes, I want to be behind the bar of a five stars hotel with my white jacket and greet the, the most wealthy people because they travel the world and they will bring the world to me. Oh, I love that. On yeah. a bar stool, they will share all their stories. And I am so much curious about life that I really want to learn from them. And plus, I am working with silver shakers. I have amazing bottles of whiskeys and cognacs that I could not find anywhere else. So why leaving? And the money is more than what a, 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 you know, a, bar, a bank manager makes. And most of it is, you know, cash tips. So that was, uh, that was my idea to run a five-star hotel bar, like a luxurious place, historical. But I also realized that, uh, you know, you have to deal with what life brings you. And so I was almost 20 when I had my wonderful daughter, Elisa. And... Um, you know, coming out of hotel school, uh, you know, with no savings or anything and really start from scratch. And um, it was an incredible experience and journey. But again, uh, I think it was a wonderful miracle. And, uh, and uh, right now with, the, you know, Elisa, she's 28 and mm-hmm. I have an incredible connection with her. And uh, She's making me proud and she just got her master at the Northwestern actually in Chicago yeah. near you. It's amazing. Uh, and uh, in clinical mental health science. So uh, she's actually a full-time therapist now with her uh, uh, concierge for the soul. Uh, that's what she calls it. And uh, she actually went on podcast with the, with the liquor suppliers to talk about how to manage stress during COVID time for hospitality industry people. So well, we'll have to have her unserved up for sure. Oh, trust me. She will bring a lot yes. of good things. Uh, but uh, so, you know, I'm 20 years old with a child and uh, I given an opportunity to design and start a bar from scratch. And uh, so I'm 20 years old, designing a bar, buying all the entire order and full trust from the owners. And um, I run it. Then I went to another bar also from them inside an hotel that was a villa from the 16th century turning into a boutique hotel owned by Electrolux, the very famous, you know, electronic appliance conglomerate from Sweden, just like, you know, General Electric or sure, sure. stuff like that. And it was beautiful. I had, uh, you know, linen coasters on the counter, marble, wood, piano. And I was 21 running that place myself from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. with an helper, you know, a cocktail waitress and the pianist. That's it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I... And in the meantime, I joined the Italian Bartender Association and I started to compete and I started to, you know, get my feet wet. Uh, and at one point I am in Tuscany, in this beautiful um, a spa hotel um, in Monte Catini, uh, not far north of Pisa. And I found this book on the credenza and it's uh, the 300 top leading hotels of the world. So I take it home and they all had, it's basically, 
you know, there was no website back then. There was no sure. anything. So I start to read all the amenities that each hotel has, where they're located, if they have a bar. So I got to my, in my hometown, there was a gentleman who had uh, computers where you could learn, you know, the big Macs with the green screen, big box. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dial up. I think exactly. they call it dial up. <laughs> and uh, what I did, I, I basically took um, 80 of those 300 hotel and I wrote and I sent my resume to all of them all around the world. And 50, 51 replied to me and by mail. So imagine every week for months, I was expecting an airmail, you know, the one with the red and blue, white strips. Yes. Of, uh, you know, um, from Singapore, from Carlsbad, California, from Stockholm, from Copenhagen, from Madrid, from everywhere. Only two replied to me. And at that time, for me, it was a choice to go to the Princess Cruise Line. And mm-hmm. I had an interview in Switzerland or uh, to go to choose one of the two. One was Singapore. And one was Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland. So granted that my mentor barman from the White Lady Piano Bar had one of the largest single my collection in the world, of, uh, in Italy, sorry, um, probably in Europe of single malls. I fell in love so much I said, I want to go to Scotland. I went to Scotland during hotel school. I love it. I want to go back. I love Scotch whiskey. That's my passion. So I... You know, I had to take my uh, ex-wife, you know, and my daughter. Uh, she was two years old, uh, back to their uh, my ex-wife parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we closed, uh, you know, I left the bar. I closed the, you know, the apartment. I had to leave in a month. And I find myself in Scotland, right? Nobody, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody and everything. But just to put in perspective for the young you know, people that they are joining our industry. I was making back then in Italy when I was 21, $2,000 a month, right? Which now there are families who work in Italy, they probably make 1200 or 1500 So I left that to go to Scotland for $700 a month. Wow. A month, not a, a month. week, a month. And the reason why I've done that is because every choice I made up to now, I always did it in order to fulfill a piece of the puzzle that would create the picture of my life. So when people think of their career journey, you know, they probably think, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then they say, well... I'm going to do it one day or this and that. But for me, since I was in hotel school, I said, what do I need? I need to strengthen the barista knowledge in me. Okay, so I go work and I, I, uh, in a bar where it was specialized in coffee and speed. And then I said, my father makes ice cream. Uh, I want to learn more about ice cream. And so I work, in, I work also in an ice cream shop to create all the... F- fantastic different offering from you know gelato fruit cups and affogato and all of that then i said i need to increase speed so i went to work in a nightclub and then i said i want to learn about the, the five star service so i went to five stars hotels 
So everything I've done, I've done it to fulfill my weakest link. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I found great mentors along the way. And the mentors were not only the bar manager, or, but they were also the hotel general manager, the, the metro D of the restaurant next to the bar. Or, but people that they really share with you bluntly and honestly the way that, you know, the life is. There is no sugar coating. This is the way it is. Mm-hmm. You're here to serve and you're here to please. And the guests always come first. And if you like it, good. You will progress. If you don't, you know, you can become a greenkeeper, you know, uh, in the golf course, or you can decide something else. So I hold on to it. It was very tough to leave my family. I was 22, a one-year-old, a a two-year-old daughter. I was living in a place by myself in this little room. Um, it, it, I almost felt like uh, Ratatouille, you know, when the oh. chef is end up in the soffit. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So at that time, it was like that. But I found along uh, the way great friends, which I'm still in contact right now, and they helped me, t- you know, to to cope with the loneliness. And, uh, but I was there for, I had a mission to accomplish. And the mission was to get a resume that would catapult me to the next level and to learn about Scotch whiskey so I could become an authority. Uh, and I would start training my staff. I mean, imagine my colleagues back in 1994. Um, and I was typing up in computer, you know, with broken English. And, and I was hosting volunteering uh, seminars for people from the restaurant or so to come in. And I was talking to them and teach Scotch, Scotch, Scottish about Scotch whiskey, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and or champagne or cognac. And so I really started to share my knowledge when I was 22, when I was at the Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland. Then mm-hmm. I came back and uh, then I went, to other places, you know, and then the Hotel Cipriani was an incredible experience for me in Venice and the Palace Hotel in Stad in Switzerland, mm-hmm. uh, intercontinental in Cologne, Germany, and, and other locations in Italy as well. But, um, you know, and in the meantime, my father, my sisters working in their own bars, you know, sure. running a parallel life and say, come with us, help us. You're going to do good. You're going to, for the family, say, no. For as much as I love you, I am not going to come back and regress. Uh, my mission is to progress. I need to become an authority in the, of the bar. And it requires a lot of study, a lot of experience. And I am sorry, but I can't put all that aside for the family business. You do well, you're on your own. And, you know, I have a different future. And still to date, you know, I'm in the United States and they still have a bar and um, they closed one because of COVID and they just have one left. But that's, uh, that's the way it is. You know, I didn't give up. And uh, now I am and then in between I'm doing competition for the IBA. You know, I mm-hmm. went to John White course. I go to Singapore. I meet incredible people. I win the John White course in Singapore for the IBA after winning the nationals. And then I tried to go back for the Bacardi Martini Grand Prix. And I tried 
few times. And at the age of 28, I actually won both awards, the, the cocktail award and also the technical award. And um, now it's called the Bacardi Legacy. I think it evolved, but it was a, a three, four days of testing foreign languages, multiple presidents of IBA testing you. It was like a giving a thesis at university. It was so challenging. You have to study and prepare yourself. They, you could ask you questions about uh, paintings, you know, uh, or to describe uh, in, uh, the period of impressionist uh, painters or to describe this and that. Where is the, you know, this Monet artwork, um, you know, displaying which uh, museum, tell me the stock market name uh, of uh, Tokyo or because I, you need all those information to deal with guests from around mm -hmm. the world when you work in a five star hotel, right? Sure. So it was a plus product knowledge there for anything from the sherry grapes to, you know, the, the nominations for scotch or whatever. But I finally won the world championship in, I was 26. Um, in, yeah, I was 26 in 1998. And I was so happy. I was at the Cipriani Hotel. And at that time, these two American gentlemen walk into the bar that uh, I was in the process of closing down because it was this, the middle bar. So you have a pool bar, aperitivo bar, and piano bar. So I was closing the aperitivo bar. But two gentlemen walked in, tennis shoes, shorts, you know, baseball mm -hmm. hat, and very unassuming. And he, one of them, he was who became my boss, you know, Larry Rubo, for uh, 20, for 18 years, basically, right? Uh, 18 years I worked for him, and we had an incredible journey together. But here's the ironic part of uh, Carpe Diem, right? You... I am ready to go home, which was a two and a half hour train commute, by the way. And, um, and then, you know, my colleague calls and I pick up the phone and say, hey, Francesco, I, I feel sick. I cannot come into work. I say, ah, okay, don't worry, Andrea, I'll take over. So I did mm -hmm. a double. So now I'm on my, you know, from like 9 a.m. It's 9 p.m. So I'm on a 12 hour shift, right? straight oh yeah and these two gentlemen walk in i could simply say the bar is closed and i said yes good evening gentlemen you know what can i do for you say well we're trying to get some of these very famous cipriani chocolate ice cream but everything is closed and i said don't worry i get you anything you need mm -hmm. so i go in the kitchen i found my friend alessandro the pastry chef and i said look alessandro just give me two you know to uh, service of chocolate ice cream. So I pleased the guest. Um, I didn't care if I was tired or long hours or if the bar was supposed to close because I had to switch. I had to go to close the other one after. No, I had to support the service uh, at the piano bar. And these people, these guests start to talk to me and they start to ask questions about Cuban cigars and limoncello and scotch whiskey. And I'm here with a tray standing in front of them with a whiskey on bottle on the tray and and they were interviewing me and then they said would you like to come to work for me in las vegas and wow. you know, inside of my mind i picture a, a a dirt road with tumbleweed rolling across <laughs> with brothers on one side and uh, you know money laundering casinos on the left side you know <laughs> that was my ideal las vegas <sighs> and i go like Ugh. 
I like the United States. I've never been, but I have also a family. And say, don't worry, we'll take care of all of you. So next day, I am off. I drive to Venice with uh, my ex, and uh, we meet in the Piazza San Marco, St. Mark's Square, in the, the Florian Cafe, beautiful cafe from the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. And we're typing, you know, it's not typing, sorry, this is before digital computer era. He's uh, writing uh, figures on a cocktail napkin, right? And so I accepted. We went for dinner. And then uh, the following spring, after going to Switzerland for the season, winter season, I give it a try. I came to Las Vegas. And that's also where in the 1999, basically, I met Tonya Boganim and you and the rest of the team, right? OPG mm-hmm. and, and all the wonderful people, including Nick Gallegos, rest in peace, our dear yes. friend, have passed yes. away this summer. Mm-hmm. And um, so I. I went back to the Cipriani in the summer, came back and, you know, get the green card paperwork. So the company, Sosada Glacier One Spirits, basically um, the Nevada, you know, division um, took care of my transfer and everything. And I been with this company, uh, with the company from March 1st, 2000 to uh, March 2nd, 2018. So 18 years on the dot. And, you know, I started the Academy of Spirits. In the beginning, it was brutal. I only, uh, three days before the beginning, I only had three people sign up. So I- Oh my goodness. Can you can you take us back for just a second and tell us who those two gentlemen were that walked into the bar? They were so inspired by you that they started to interview you on the spot and brought you to America. And thank God they did. Yeah, well, uh, Larry Rubo, which is um, glad to consider and call him my dear friend and mentor, because he's really the one who taught me so much about how to conduct business, you know, especially in the United States or um, interaction with people. But above all, and the other gentleman was uh, Harvey, is uh, one of a former um, um, lawyers, I think, or a friend. And Mm -hmm. but um the Mr. Ruvo is the one who you know when he starts to entertain people because with him I mean I serve and I took care I did drink and I spent time at the bar with uh, I can name just a few but Tony Bennett Steven Spielberg uh Tony Curtis uh 50 cent uh Presidents of like Activisions, you know, founders, uh, celebrities, uh, the, the Bill Clinton, George, uh, uh, George Bush Senior, um, uh, so many Quincy Jones, uh, Gloria Emilio Estefan, John Bon Jovi. I can go on and on, but it's not about bragging about them. But the good thing about this individual that. A one-on-one basis, they were always so enthusiastic and polite and excited to taste drinks or spend time. Even George Bush seniors, I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I was with him and just with him and Mr. Drubo on a din- dinner table or with Quincy Jones and Emilio Estefan, you know, with uh, they won over 80 um music awards together you know it's amazing with them. So what am i what am i doing here with them you know and breaking bread and, and then we still stay friends with emilio and gloria very much so but um yeah this person at the vision the vision to say look if i can change the life of this young gentleman 
and bring them to America. And he also will change the life of my sales force and my client customers in Las Vegas. And I have to be honest with you, it was inspired by at that time, Steve Wynn Bellagio opening. Mm -hmm. And um, they were able to hire a figure that would do the beverage programs at Chestonia Buganin, which is our dear friend and brother Mm -hmm. that we you know and uh, thanks also to tony position kind of sparkle the idea for lady rubo to have not one just for a resort but somebody for the entire city but in 2003 i started it to i started to really become more of a national you know to have a more national exposure and what is important, I think, in life is also to recognize the people who put you in certain spots, right? The people Absolutely. That, uh, and I never forget the, the help that many did. And, but also, Sean Kelly, um, sir, but Kelly, I think is the correct name. I don't want to chop her for Sean, but uh, she's a dear friend. She used to be for the Distilled Council of the United States. Mm -hmm. And now and then she went to work for other suppliers. And, but she's the one who, the, with the distill, with discus, uh, put me up at the Bellagio during a bar show many, many years ago, 2003, 2000, I think it was. And I hosted my first seminar. Really? You know, for journalists. And and then from there, uh, it became a nationwide exposure, international, you know, hosting seminars in Sydney, you know, um, uh, going to all the way to Europe and you know, Mexico and, and so forth. So really the career of an educator started probably 2003, three years after I established the academy. But I also, you know, brought a dear friend of mine, Livio Lauro on board. I hire him, uh, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily hire him. I introduce him to the management as a great, valuable, you know, person with great skills that, turn out to be, you know, the, wonderful with the job that he's doing and his show and so forth. But he came on board um, one year after I came on board and, um, you know, we, we had a, a great time back then. But uh, I think I kind of lost the, the train of thoughts right here. No, that's okay. I've asked you one question, so yeah. we're <laughs> We're, we're, we're just talking about your life. And, you know, I think that the first time I met you then was probably in 1999. Um, I was at the Bellagio and I remember that you would come in where we would be doing cocktail competitions and I'd see you come across the bar once in a while. And I was very curious about you and what you were all about and what you were doing for Southern because um, I want our listeners to know that during that time, you know, there, there were no brand ambassadors. There were, you know, the, the culture and the climate around our, our art, our craft, our trade was so completely different than it is today. Yeah. So you, without you, like people like you and Tony and Dale, we wouldn't have all the beauty and all the wonderful opportunities that we have as a community today. And I recognize this through your story and through your hard work and also through all your sacrifices that you've had to make um, because I, I know that you've made a ton of sacrifices over the past, you know, 20 some odd years to be where you are today for sure. And I want to thank you for that because I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you going before me to pave the way. 
Well, it's a, you know, the difference is that you have to, when you believe in something, right? It's, um, you almost feel that you have a mission, you know, you have a torch to carry, right? Mm -hmm. And I felt that, uh, you know, right after hotel school, I felt that when I was 19, you know, 20, about 20 years old, 1920, I, that was a moment that I could change a different destiny, but I kept pursuing this one because I believed. And, and then when I was exposed to, you know, so many resources and opportunities, I wanted to share it, you know, with uh, my peers and because what is the purpose to know so much and then, you know, uh, not, not share it with anybody, you know, you just, uh, this, the, I think uh, it's very fundamental for someone that has a education in mind as a, not only a source of inspiration, and drive, but it's also to be able to connect uh, with, uh, you know, with other human beings and that they share the common denominator, uh, which is, you know, our hospitality industry. So, so can you tell us, uh, Francesco, um, picking it up from 1999, when and how and why the Academy of Spirits and Fine Service came to be, because it is still a celebrated, um, platform of learning today it turned 20 years old actually this year yes and it it was one of the most important programs ever created around beverage and does not get the kind of recognition that it absolutely deserves and that you deserve so i would love to know how that came to be well uh well it came to be very important and famous also because of you and your wonderful job that you did in chicago uh, I mean, you're looking at Charles Jolie that went up to win, you know, one of the most prestigious awards in the world. And and definitely you've been part of his, uh, you know, uh, foundations and, um, and many, many other ones, you know, working for other suppliers now and like Lynn and others. But um, I think... It all started with the with an idea. It all started with a very genuine, simple idea. It was, I want to make sure that you know specific amount of information so you can divulge that information to your guest at the bar so it becomes an, a more of a deeper experience because if the customer at the bar is becomes educated by the bartender or you know the front of the house uh, employee uh, consequently this customer will become a much more wiser educated consumer because if i tell you that this gene has this amount of botanicals with this flavor profile that is more uh, accentuated than this type of gin, then when you are in front of the store shelf, because we know that in front of the store shelf, uh, not all the employees and the liquor store or beverage store, they're very, very knowledgeable as much as bartenders these days. So uh, my point is that it was important for me to train 
someone behind the bar that would eventually train, uh, for lack of better terms, or share the passion and knowledge uh, to the guests, to their peers. And then the peers would actually go to a liquor store, buy the product and share that knowledge uh, with uh, their friends and, you know, and, and guests. Because remember, yes, now, of course, you just with the click you go you know on google and you can click and find out everything about everything but when the academy was created we didn't know about the access to have google and information and in you know at the tip of your finger so for me it was important to create an infrastructure the suppliers were skeptical but also curious so the support was there also financially to to be able to purchase you know their furniture and mm-hmm. I, you know, in my first one, I remember I had to go drive to the space where I had the glass, uh, load the glassware, unload it, put them in a tub in the back of my car, drive back to the main office, go upstairs with the tub, wash them until 11 at midnight. I had to go over 100 of glass myself because I didn't mm-hmm. have any help. And then, you know, do it again the next week or twice mm-hmm. a week no assistant and you know what it is i, I did the exact same so, thing it was terrible i'm like are they ever gonna get me a dishwasher because this kind of sucks but it's like you the passion and and is what really drives you yeah. to keep that class going and you don't you don't mind washing a hundred classes and putting them back in your car bringing them back to the office i did the same thing slept it up two flights of stairs in a city yeah. office yeah and our dear friend bobby g gleason mm-hmm. uh who won the first Academy of Student, Academy of Spirit Student, Best Student Award. Um, you know, we're going back 20 years and it's amazing. In the meantime, uh, the reason why I was talking about Livio Lauro uh, is because with him and many others, including Tony, of course, played a fundamental role and Bobby G and Christine and uh, all your friends from Bellagio, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Diane and many other, but we established the guild, the chapter of United States Bartenders Guild, Nevada. And at that point, it was great to have the academy as a base for our meeting and so forth. And, uh, you know, it developed from there. We started to connect more with the California Mother Guild. And then from there, we started the chapter. Now, look at now, we're like, what, 60, 70 chapters around the I country? Know, there's so many. I mean, it really has blossomed over the past. 20 years. And, and, I, and also, I think it's just getting started. I mean, it's such a new thing still, you know, if you think about it, just being 20 years old, it's not that. I think and with Ray Syrup and his uh, Balance magazine, you know, like yes. two, two, two pages. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were, um, yeah, I mean, 2001 September, I remember we sat down with Jose Ancona, who recently passed away, bless his soul, because he's the, the wonderful man that uh, we all cherish and great mm-hmm. memories. And he helped us to, you know, get up to speed and, you know, leave you also when national and now our very own Kyle, you know, is leading the way. Yes. And um, that's basically, you know, our, our heritage. And, uh, but it all started, you know, think about it with me coming, I mean, accepting to serve those guests, right? Uh, following also the Japanese philosophy of Ichigo Ichie, one chance, one time. And the guests walked in. And what I want to tell to everybody, uh, youngster and veterans out there in our <laughs> field, they say, 
you never know who is in front of you. And don't assume that a suit or a well, someone very well-dressed, you know, uh, is the person that is always the most important or because a lot of unassuming individuals, uh, they're very, they have a lot of connection and very, you know, influential. So you should treat everybody the same uh, independently, right? From race or gender or or just the way they're dressed. Oh, however, of course, we know that dress code is reinforced for specific reason in certain environments, including my former Mr. Coco. <laughs> I know. I had to buy a dress. <laughs> I was oh, in Vegas to go. To. I only had jeans and I was like, shoot, I know You're he's got friend. a he has a strict dress code. Uh, I need to not go for to you. That, that Las Vegas fashion show mall and grab something. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but um you know, after I left Southern Wine, Southern Glacier Wine Experience in 2018 because I was offered by the Fertitta family on Station Casinos in Las Vegas to mm-hmm. be part of the $700 million renovation of the Palms Casino, and they were giving me a space. So I accepted uh, the very first space they were giving me. I actually brought Mr. Rubo with me, looked at it, say, Francesco, you know, I don't think this is the right location, but um, you know, and I was like, oh no, really? I shut my dream of having a bar inside the casino, right? Yeah. But then uh, the hotel general manager called me back a couple of days later and he said, I have a new location for you. So nobody's there waiting for me. Uh, security opened the door. I walked through this corridor, which was the back of the house, pushed the button, elevator opens. He stops at the third floor. That's the only uh, that's the only floor he stops to so and he opens up in this two-story sorry you know two-story two rooms um you know um venue and um it was just for private screening and small suite for entertainment but um i closed my eyes i sit there for 30 minutes and i saw the vision and i say i take it and then mm-hmm. it took me almost two years to build it and, um, you know, I had a very rigorous training, two months of training, every uh, five days a week. And uh, beautiful, you know, from the linen, the, the beautiful Bernardo China, crystal glassware from Italy, you know. I had a full-time person just to polish glassware, you mm-hmm. know, for the entire shift. And uh, the good thing is that, I was paying this person a lot, but it was well justified simply because uh, since we opened for 14 months, we we stay open until COVID, uh, you know. Um, right, COVID hit. Down. But in 14, in 14 months, we never replaced glassware, you know. It was uh, quite a, an achievement to have a very good, strong back of the house. But... Uh, uh, you know, Mr. Coco was special. My daughter helped me tremendously with the name and the concept and the, all the branding. And um, and Mr. Coco is our Westie. You know, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful Westie. And um, that's basically the journey. But now, you know, after COVID, uh, everybody had to reinvent themselves. And along the way, uh, had this opportunity that came by to be with a new startup hospitality capital firm with an incredible gentleman named Sean Christie that has been a veteran and you know him of mm-hmm. course from the light group days right mm-hmm. uh, and then um, he was also 
CEO for Steve Wynn Corporation and he opened Anchor Beach Club and all the way to, um, um, you know, to his last uh, occupation with the MGM Resorts and Mayfair at Bellagio. But um, so I'm looking forward now to be in charge of the beverage operations and hospitality culture. And I told you at the beginning of our conversation that I wanted to reiterate a little bit of the hospitality culture because uh, that is the, the reason why I wanted to take upon, you know, this, uh, this very, very strong uh, responsibility because let's be realistic. Uh, our industry is going to face a tremendous uh, withdrawal of uh, human capital. It's going to be, we're going to be very challenged. The new generation don't really want to go through the sacrifice to serve others in such a way that, you know, our generation taught us to do. And um, also, you know, there are a lot of things in the daily life that are shifting and the perception of how we approach things and hospitality and service is also going to be compromised and the work ethic is also being challenged so it's important for me uh, with this uh, with Carver Road uh, to create a whole new culture of hospitality I am not saying that it's going to be the best or the only one or but it's going to be um, a culture that will be uh, that will have a very high standards and the high standard that for the people who know me and I'm a firm believer and there are you know thousands of other people like like me of course and uh, they're very committed and um, but on my own I have this responsibility uh, to create the next uh, you know, service, uh, hospitality individual that will be able to cope with the challenges of the 21st century. And um, of course, I'm not going to be the only one and not be just by myself, but, uh, you know, um, it's very, very important that uh, we understand, we let the young people understand what they, what they're walking into it. And, uh, but if we are able to share the true values of pride of ownership, understanding what is important for the house and to have a very, a mutual respect between employee and employer, understanding and communicate and create all these fundamentals to be the, you know, the codes of, uh, the code of law, so to speak, uh, for mm-hmm. for this new approach of hospitality, I think um, are going to be successful, you know. And plus, you know, hospitality doesn't start or end with the guest interaction, but um, it's with all human beings we interact daily. That's right. Your hospitable to you know to your husband to your mm-hmm. to your child to mm-hmm. your hospitable to your relatives your hospitable to your neighbor your hospitable mm-hmm. to the stranger at the grocery store you open a door for somebody you know you let someone go through uh, maybe they have less grocery in their hands than you do right mm-hmm. there are acts of courtesy that uh, they become part of you it's not just uh, you don't become courteous only when you click in until you, cl- uh, you, when you clock in, sorry, and you clock out, you are courteous because you 
you basically are there to to please the people around you to create a positive energy and make people feel comfortable you know that's that's what to me is the fundamental of hospitality yeah i think that you nailed that right on the head i mean it's the energy it's um giving that positivity back right to yeah because individual. the Again, people think hospitality, oh, it's only, it's only in, hospi- in a business, in a restaurant, in a bar, you know, like, an, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, hospitality is not uh, targeted just to its own uh, industry, but it has to benefit an ideal, uh, the whole community that you live in. And... Uh, this is where I'm going to create uh, or actually, you know, uh, promote, I should say, that, that culture that I truly believe. And I was so lucky and ungrateful that I inherited from my, you know, former metro D's or hotel managers or bar managers and mm-hmm. my boss, you know, and Larry Rubo and another great gentleman, Michael Severino, worked for Larry Rubo for many years, is a, is a superstar and... Uh, you know, it, it's really uh, very witty, very knowledgeable. But what I admire from him that he never took credit. He was the person responsible for the outcome, but he mm-hmm. never took credit. He was always in the, you know, in the in the in the shade, right? In the shadow. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, he didn't need to be. Hey, I did this. I did that. Right, right. But he was the one who directed it, you know, behind the scenes and. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, I like I said I I feel very grateful for everything I had and, and I have and um, there were more you know high you know peaks and lows for everybody in life right but sure. uh, you need to have a destination otherwise you keep on sailing uh, at sea but you need to have a port <laughs> you need to have a port but I think that something that's amazing about you Francesco is that you remain curious. And I think it's oh, yes. through your, your curiosity that also really drove you to learn all these different aspects um, of the industry to complete your puzzle. And you, and you remain curious as you are redefining perhaps what, you know, what hospitality will look like and what, what it will mean to the industry and to our, to our beverage culture. Yeah. I, I think, you know, curiosity it's very important for human beings for progression. This is how science, technology, you know, uh, and every field, or even intellectual fields, uh, they progress because without curiosity, if you don't ask yourself questions, um, you, you settle in an environment that it becomes a routine and comfort. But on the other hand, you know, it's like if you look outside and you see the horizon, you see a straight line. But if you take a plane and you fly, or if you go out of space and you see the, you know, the earth that turns on its own, you would never know that uh, if you stick in one place, right? Yeah. If you always keep looking at the straight line of the horizon. And curiosity trigger a series of uh, events is like a domino effect because let's put it this way. Uh, let's say 
I look up at the bottle of cognac I never, I don't know what cognac is. I just grab a bottle and then mm-hmm. I see what does it so mean? And then I see there is an aging statement. And then I say, but a cognac, why does it taste like that? And then there is the grapes. And then uh, why these grapes? And then who planted the first time? And this and that. Then you go back to the Roman Empire who invaded France and the Gauls and, pl- and brought uh, the vineyards, you know, the, the viticulture to, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, conquered country. And then you learn... Uh, they were actually the Gauls that started the cooperage. And so the Rome left the amphora, the clay pot into that. But it's an evolution. So you never stop because there's always so many things that are attached one to another. Uh, all the way to, you know, the marketing. Why this cognac has this packaging? And now you understand that there are studies about impulsive purchasing behavior. And so imagine what is in between that you know and the most fascinating thing if uh, like in my background you see i only have a few bottles not that mm-hmm. you know 800 plus that i had the mr coke but um, <laughs> think about this you look at these bottles look how much in intellectual property is behind every of that bottle mm-hmm. some who created the glass and make it the clearest glass possible someone the screw cap someone the label, someone uh, the liquor inside, someone the pot still, someone learning about the oak in the forest, uh, cutting the right time, or you know, hammering the copper pot still in the right way. Or, and, and then the liquid that speaks to you when it enters the palate and, and you start to have the you know, sensory evaluation. Um, so you have this eloquence that comes through you know, from a glass of your favorite wine or beverage or spirits. And, and, and when you know what it takes for that journey and the research, the challenges, the struggle of a country, you know, when you drink whiskey or scotch or bourbon or vodka, you know that there is a country uh, or multiple country that share that common heritage and when you drink it you feel that you're representing you know the community and the country that you come from absolutely i think behind every bottle it's it's almost having an antique behind your bar you know there's a story there's a lifeblood um to it that should be respected Mm -hmm. and we need to be you know more connected it's not just by putting a drink you know it's about uh Pouring a drink, uh, but you're also pouring a story. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, it's about uh, a liquid experience, um, and that's basically the curiosity that I have. Because every time I start to learn about a topic, it takes me into the other one, mm-hmm. and and I just like to have answers. I don't like when people say, you know, say, "Why do you do this?" Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> well, that's how he does it or she does it. Mm-hmm. I say, yes, but why? You know, mm-hmm. you need to know why because everything you do has a purpose, right? Sure. Every choice we make as a, as a, uh, will influence the outcome. So if you shake this way, if you handle the glassware this way, everything has an explanation. So that's why I, I promote that and I push my employees, my staff to be able to have, to stand up for themselves and have an answer for everything. Yeah. 
You are so inspiring. I can't wait to have you back and to hear more about your story and what you're going to do next, Francesco LaFranconi, because you never cease to amaze. You're always reinventing yourself and really paving the way for all of us. Um, Just an incredible human. And I feel so honored to have had you on Served Up today. Now, thank you for your very eloquent and wonderful words. I, you know, like I said before, I, I still think sometimes, despite the fact that I am in a yacht or in a private jet or in a mansion home, I still think of myself when I was, you know, that 12, 10, 12, 14 year old shepherd up in the mountain. And now I see all these wells and people that are not happy, but they play the part and, and I'm very happy. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that I have people around me and the women around me that um, help me to, to grow. I always found people, and this is very important for everybody. I think it's important to be surrounded by individuals that help you grow, grow, you know, as a person um, and not those that are sugarcoating or tell you only what you want to hear. But, you know, even if they beat you up with the stick in the head every day, but uh, the moment that you you graduate, they will stop beating the stick, you know? <laughs> but it's um, uh, never stop learning about yourself and uh, personal growth. And there are a lot of resources these days. Uh, so our younger generation are more, you know, in a way they're, they can benefit from that and they can learn faster. I mean, remember you and I, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm older than you, but I had to learn about whiskey or cognac or rum and I had to buy a book and sometimes it's a foreign language. Now you have that digital book. You can learn in six months what it took me 10 years. Right, right. No, me too. I mean, it's the exact same thing. You know, we were learning before the age of the internet, before the age of Google, before the age of having everything at your fingertips, or even a brand ambassador, you know, visiting your bar, restaurant, whatever it may be, you know, really teaching you, you know, about their portfolio that did not exist when we were first starting. Um, It really was trial by fire. And so things have changed, but your curiosity and your passion and your love, you know, for our industry remains. And it's a beautiful thing. I've enjoyed your story. I know our listeners have as well. Um, I do hope, Francesco, that you'll be a regular guest on Served Up so we can watch your journey into what you do next as you reshape um, the hospitality industry with your new career. I I'm in the process to do something very, very good. Actually, with Carver Road, I am building a bar as we speak inside the office just for, you know, personal demo, you know, just for... Just to make some Negronis, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I'm going to have some some nice cool stuff and podcasting from there and sharing some good tips and some, you know, new things that, uh, that I'm bringing to the market and discover, but, um, you know, everybody knows my quote that is, uh, you know, that we are not drinking, we're learning quote. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, uh, I would like to leave you with this one that, um, it's part of something that I am working on. 
again. But uh, once the bottle ends, only memories are left. Look back at life and sip every moment. Uh, bravo. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on today, Francesco. You're welcome, my dear, wonderful friend, Bridget. And thank you for taking the Academy of Spirits and Fine Service to the whole next level. Yeah. Thank you for being an inspiration. <laughs> love you, brother. Thank you. I love you too. Happy holidays to everybody. Happy holidays. Ciao. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.